Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College. In this program, Dirk van der Klee and Benjamin Herskovich, research fellows at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance, join Chris Farnham to discuss how Australia can protect its education exports from potential economic coercion from China. Dirk and Benjamin have authored our latest policy options paper, Protecting Education Exports, Minimising the Damage of China's Future Economic Coercion. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Now let's get into it. G'day Dirk, g'day Ben, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having us, great to be with you. So just in this week that we're recording, the uh, NDRC or the National Development and Reform Commission in China has just this week announced that it was suspending cooperation under the Australia-China Strategic Economic Dialogue. And this goes to the broader subject matter that we're going to be discussing. So I just want to start and get your thoughts on that. What impact do you think that this move is likely to have on our economic and overall relations with China? Ben, can I start with you? Absolutely. Look, this is a significant development, but it's primarily a development which has symbolic import in that it's more just an indication of how far relationship the relationship has fallen. It doesn't indicate that there is a significant shift that we're seeing right now. It's more just in keeping with the overarching, long-standing steep decline in bilateral relations. It's probably been provoked by a couple of specific decisions taken by the Australian government the vetoing of the Belt and Road Initiative Agreement between the state of Victoria and China, and then also the decision to start a review of the 99-year lease for land bridge group of the Port of Darwin. So it's prompted by specific things, but it's basically just in keeping with the way in which relationship is falling apart on a whole host of different fronts. In terms of the concrete impact of this decision, there probably won't be much that will be felt it will mean that it is just that much harder for Australian political leaders and Australian ministers to get their counterparts in Beijing to pick up the phone and restart dialogue, which would be useful from an Australian perspective. But the reality is that in a whole host of different sectors throughout the Australian economy, the pain associated with the declining relationship is already being felt on a whole host of different industries. So it's more just confirmation of what we already knew, that things are going really badly and people are already hurting. Dirk, have you got any points that you'd like to add to this? Um, yeah, probably. So, first of all, I agree with Ben, the economic impact of this will be pretty small. Um, but the real question is, with regards to the, the response to the BRI MOU cancellation, the review of the Port of Darwin, uh, all the comments that we've seen publicly about Taiwan, and probably a number of things that are in the pipeline. One could imagine, for example, the Foreign Relations Act um, being used again in different circumstances, say, for example, with Confucius Institutes, 
is do we see any further ratcheting up of the economic punishments that we've seen? So this, what happened like just this week, that's a very easy thing for Beijing to do that only has symbolic value. The question is, are we going to see further economic punishments? And this is what the paper that we've, we've written is about, um, that we foresee if there's going to be an industry that's going to be targeted, education will probably be the most likely target. So we, we can't foresee what's happening inside Beijing's black box of political decision-making versus its economic interests. But that is the big question. What we've seen in other instances is something happens, it often takes them a few months to game play it inside their system as well, and then we see a response, you know, a little bit further down the track. And that's probably the concern around the Australian decisions that have happened this week. Is there something more that's going to come beyond just this individual uh, decision to cancel the dialogue, which is symbolic but not really economically punishing? So you mentioned your paper that you've written for us, and it's an excellent paper. It's titled Protecting Education Exports, Minimising the Damage of China's Future Economic Coercion, and it's called a policy options paper that we publish here at the National Security College for the precise reason that it does actually offer policy options for policy makers. And we're going to get to a few of them. But firstly, I just wanted to ask about um, some of the recent words that have been spoken by China's ambassador to Australia, where he actually did mention whether Chinese students might choose not to come to Australia to study here. This sounds to be a very, very similar warning that he made about Chinese citizens and their choice to maybe no longer consume Australian products. Do you take that as a veiled warning or or maybe even an explicit warning that they are moving to uh, attack our our education export market? So I I think it is definitely a warning. Um, It's hard to say how serious it is, but just let me take one little step back from that and sort of describe why we chose to, you know, focus on education versus all the other exports, and then I'll get to that question of how it differs to the other exports. Um, Firstly, we looked at the exports that China has, Australia has to China um, prior to COVID, and there were four that were over 10 billion, uh, coal, education, iron ore, and gas. Well, coal's already been targeted, it's basically zero, and we've diversified to other markets. Iron ore, it's really difficult for China to find alternate markets to Australia. Gas, China could um, block Australian imports. It would be annoying and a little bit of a hassle for them. They could, but the damage to Australia would be relatively limited because we have other markets that we can sell that to. And then education, which is the final one, um, there really aren't any other markets for Australia. So if China decided that it wanted to ratchet up tensions, this is the natural next step. And that's why we chose this particular industry to focus on. Um, so that's, that's the sort of first part to it. Would, would they do it? They haven't done it anywhere else, but when they've made threats about other industries, such as agriculture, they certainly have gone through. So what I would say is it's, it's not veiled. It's a credible threat, but we don't know for sure whether they'll follow through with it. Um, your listeners may not have seen that in, I think it was February, uh, this year, a small, some, Education agents that sold Australian education products to Chinese consumers in second and third tier cities were requested not to sell those anymore. That would, that would be sort of seem like a very, um, sort of first step for doing that, sort of testing the waters. We could foresee, and as we say in the paper, uh, the possibility 
that they would maybe move that to first tier cities, uh, which would be quite uh, a significant impact. If, if we, those... I, I gather we can assume that the vast majority of Chinese students coming to Australia are coming from uh, T1, T2 cities. Is that correct? T1, T2 cities, and almost through all, always through education agents. Uh, so that's a really important component of that. They have. Um, already issued like security warnings about Australia that could continue. Um, so far that has very little impact, but that's also something that can continue. And there's two other things that we highlighted in the paper. One was the possibility that they could, um, stop recognizing Australian education qualifications. We view that as very significant consequence, probably low likelihood. And the other one as well is to instruct Chinese firms, particularly state-owned enterprises, to not hire people with Australian Qualifications once again, serious consequence, not such a high likelihood. But between those tools that are available, there are things that the, the Chinese government can do to seriously um, impact Australian education exports or the number of students coming to Australia. That those tools um, could potentially be quite effective, and we could see a drop off if they chose to use them. Um, can 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 they essentially actually stop? Chinese students from coming to Australia? Is there some kind of legal mechanism or physical mechanism that they can use to stop Chinese students from coming to Australia? Or if there are some that are completely dedicated to studying in Australia, that they still actually will come through? Um, yeah, so it, it, there's not a tool, unless they wanted to use exit bans, um, there's no other real tool, and I don't view that as, as credible, there is no other real tool they can do to you know stop in the way that they can stop coal exports. So students that really want to come can come, um, but students that, you know, could happily choose any number of destinations, those ones I think would be the ones that would be most likely affected by these, by any number of, any one of those particular tools that they might want to use. So it is different to coal. We wouldn't expect it to go all the way to zero, but a drop-off certainly is, I think, feasible from where we stand. Yeah, stopping from something entering your borders is actually quite different than stopping people, what they do when they leave your borders. Ben, could I ask you, are, are there any potential costs to China? So you, you've you've mentioned in your previous answers how they can't necessarily boycott Australian iron ore because uh, places like Brazil, which are, not, are other large uh, exporters to China, number one, if, if they are the single large export, they can ratchet up the price to exact whatever cost they want out of China. China, but they're also struggling with the COVID uh, pandemic as well. So Brazil, they can't cut us off for market reasons. They also can't cut us off for practical reasons at the moment. There are costs to China taking that action. Are there any potential costs to China politically or economically to stopping their nationals from studying in Australia? Yeah, there absolutely are. And I think they're probably not so much costs related to China and the world, China's reputation, but they're more cost domestically for the Chinese Communist Party and for the Chinese government in that if you're seeking through relatively draconian measures via things like exit bans to stop people from studying in Australia, that will lead to a pretty significant backlash at home among middle class and upper middle class Chinese families who might like to send their students, sorry, their children to Australia to study. So there's a big legitimacy issue there for the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government more broadly. And they would be deeply attuned to those kinds of domestic sensitivities, particularly because there would be a not insignificant number of Chinese Communist Party officials and Chinese government officials more broadly who would have their children studying in Australia or would have family members who were studying in Australia. So 
there is a big feedback mechanism there whereby a decision like that would breed discontent and that discontent would be felt at home for the Chinese Communist Party. And so I suspect that what that means is that if we see a drawdown in the number of Chinese students coming to Australia to study, it will probably be something that is relatively incremental and doesn't involve the kinds of draconian measures we were talking about earlier in terms of exit mass. It would be more about shaping public opinion and directing people away from Australia to alternative markets for higher education so you're not being so restrictive on people's personal choices. And I guess the advantage from the point of view of Beijing is that they don't need to do anything as extreme as put in place exit bans for the sake of sending a really strong political message to Canberra. So if you're even just cutting Chinese student numbers by 10% or 20% or 30%, that will have a devastating impact on Australian education exports. And it will also have all of these really significant reverberations through the Australian economy. And of course, will be felt in a really acute way politically in Canberra and will generate a huge amount of debate and discussion in the Australian national media. And I guess that goes to one of the key motivations from Beijing's perspective of launching these kinds of economically coercive measures. It's about making people that you're unhappy with feel pain and understand how frustrated you are with them. And so even just shaving off a few percentage points of Chinese students coming to Australia would achieve that effect very well for Beijing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to. We're going to get into what those costs for Australia are in a minute. But in terms of just shaving ten or twenty percent off, if you picture yourself being a parent and your child is eighteen years old and they're thinking about going overseas to a country that you've never studied in before and that you aren't going to be able to protect them, and you're seeing on your news bulletin each night that Australia is a violent country or a dangerous country, you're sure as hell going to encourage your student to study somewhere else, like maybe the UK or Japan or something like that. So as you're saying. The, the draconian measures such as, as, as exit bans, that, that's like the nuclear option. The more realistic option is the shaping the perceptions and it's likely going to be shaping Australia as a racist and dangerous country for, for Chinese people. Now, going to the costs and what it means for Australia, what would a serious drop in students coming from China mean for the Australian education sector? And let's start with universities in general. Mm. So, just to give the reader the, or the listeners a full picture, Australian education-related travel exports were thirty-seven million dollars all told to all countries. That was thirty-seven um, billion with a B, right? Billion with a B, thirty-seven billion with a B, much larger than tourism. That's often not um, sort of well known amongst people who don't follow this very closely. Of that, twelve billion were. Uh, travel-related exports to China, and that that can uh, eh, sorry education-related travel exports to China, and that can be fees paid to universities, fee pays to take, but it can also be some of the other travel expenses that you have while you're here too. So if we say the 12 billion that Australia has, and now we're in the realms of obviously hypotheticals, but we shave off 25 percent, that goes down to 9 billion. Some of that would be fees uh, spread across the, the whole range of sectors. And some of that would be the expenditure that um, Chinese students have when they're here in the country. And the paper points out that your average Chinese student stays for 124 days and spends $27,000, which is the highest out of all the student cohorts from each individual country. Now, if we just zero in on universities, throughout the pandemic, according to Universities Australia, um, they lost $1.8 billion in university funding, so just universities here, and that led to 17,000 job losses. 
So if you sort of think of $3 billion, you can probably be looking in the, in the realm of tens of thousands of job losses spread beyond universities. So I have got a little further than universities there, but we are looking at quite significant um, job losses in the university sector and probably um, vocational education, non-award study, and also some of the schools as well. So a lot of the students that end up being university students first go to high school in Australia and then, and then travel on. Um, there's one other cost that I think is also really important here, and that's to research. So in the last 10 years, Australian education research, um, we've had a lot more money going into it, and most of that, that has come from the universities themselves because their coffers are flush with money from international student fees. Uh, if we were to see a drop-off in that, like you're having COVID, but also afterwards, it just will mean less money for research. Um, there's billions and billions of dollars that go into this every year from the university, in the university sector, and we've seen a huge increase over the last 10 years. So there will be a significant impact to Australia's capability to research. And unlike other um, advanced economies, a lot of our research capabilities held in the university sector, whereas in, say, the US it's held in the private sector and in government much more closely, where it's not so much in Australia. So some pretty significant impacts. Just on that question of the quantity of funds for research in Australia that comes from international students, you can be sure that in the current context of COVID-19 and a massively strained federal budget and massive fiscal outlays, there is very limited appetite in government to plug that funding gap for Australian universities with more public funds. So what that effectively means, medium to long term, is that there will be a significant shortfall in research output by Australian universities, and that results in a broader lack of competitiveness for Australian universities in terms of their research. And then in terms of the population at large and big urban economies in Australia, when you think of, say, a Sydney or a Melbourne and the really thriving communities that grow up around our large universities, so much of that commerce, the restaurants, the cafes, and a lot of professions and jobs associated with that commerce, that's fueled to a significant degree by international students. And the largest cohort and biggest spending group of international students is Chinese international students. So it's an issue that has broader import for Australian society as a whole and the Australian economy as a whole and Australian jobs as a whole. Say the Chinese government did at the end of this year start moving to heavily restrict or heavily coerce Australia by attacking our, our education export market. Would these effects be felt instantly or would this be a, a sort of a cascading crisis throughout the system? Uh, the point that you're getting at here is absolutely correct that when a student signs up to a, to a qualification in Australia, no matter what it may be, often it's a multi-year commitment. Uh, so if they've already signed up, they'll see that degree out and then go on. Whereas if it's a drop-off in commencements, we'll see it sort of bit by bit as the tail of those already enrolled students falls out. So it would sort of be a two, three-year cycle to see the entirety of that system, of that money sort of withdrawal throughout the system. That has one advantage for Australia. It gives universities time to react, but it doesn't have the other advantage. It doesn't give them some sort of new source of funding. Um, and as we're going to get to in a second, I think, there really is no global market for international students that is like China. It just has the same number of people at that level of wealth that want to study abroad, and that's really the issue. So students... Universities can see it coming, knowing it's coming and doing something about it is, of course, two different things. All right. So we're going to get to the idea about diversification soon, I think, because mm. the next question is, 
what are Australia's options here? What, what in your paper and in your thinking, what are the, the the top policy options that Australia should be putting into place now to make our our education system and our national economy more resilient to potential economic coercion from China? Yeah, that's the key question, and it's on the minds of policymakers in Canberra and the public at large and university administrators around the country. And our thinking on this is that in the immediate aftermath of a serious concerted effort by Beijing to wind back the number of Chinese students in Australia, the bad news is that there is nothing that can be done in an immediate sense. Australia, when it confronts China's use of economic coercion on a whole host of fronts, has a very limited means available to actually push back against that and immediately mitigate against the cost of that economic coercion. And the same would be true in the case of Australia's educational exports. So there's nothing we can do to magically protect ourselves from this kind of coercion should it come towards us. But the good story here is that there are two key avenues where medium to long term, the Australian government can pursue policies which will put Australia in a much stronger position to deal with this kind of economic coercion. And as we know, these kinds of policy responses are hard. We've been having a debate in Australia over a number of years about how to achieve diversification and how to put Australia in a much stronger position vis-a-vis its exports, given the extent of our dependence on China. And so it's not an easy quick fix, but we think that there are two key things that can be done. The first is around making it much easier for Australian universities to export to the world and to develop new connections with universities and institutions overseas to facilitate that diversification. And the second is to promote that diversification and make it much more effective and ensure that there is really a whole of government concerted Australian approach to marketing Australian education and pushing it globally. And we can get into the granular details of those two uh, lines of effort, so to speak. But just very briefly, the first line of effort in terms of making it easier is about making some changes to the Foreign Relations Act. So the Foreign Relations Act is a piece of legislation that is aimed at creating a much more cohesive Australian approach to foreign policy. And it allows the Australian Foreign Minister to veto international agreements between Australian states and territories and Australian public universities and foreign governments and organizations in the university sector that don't have the requisite level of institutional autonomy. And this is one of those classic cases of a piece of legislation which is on the face of it country agnostic, but as with so many pieces of legislation in Australia, is driven by concerns associated with the way in which Australian universities and Australian state and territory governments have been so closely connected with China and the Chinese government. The perfect example that a lot of listeners would have been hearing in the news recently is uh, the federal government cancelling the BRI agreement that the state of Victoria had with China. That's right. So the federal government has demonstrated that it is willing and able to use these new powers to ensure that subnational units are pursuing a foreign policy agenda that is in keeping with the foreign policy agenda pursued by Canberra. And this is something which is going to have a huge impact on the way in which Australian universities operate and the way in which they go out into the world and develop international connections. And what we're proposing on that Foreign Relations Act front is to carve out an exception for Australian universities so that they are 
not obliged to comply with the quite onerous reporting requirements entailed by the Foreign Relations Act, which involves submitting all the details of international arrangements that Australian universities enter into with foreign universities. And as a part of that, there is the possibility of the Australian foreign minister stepping in and vetoing those international arrangements. And in the current context of Australian universities being really seriously squeezed by COVID, border closures, and also the prospect of economic coercion from China, our view is that it would be very beneficial for Australian universities, but also for the Australian economy as a whole, to ensure that there wasn't that kind of additional bureaucratic pressure on Australian universities, and there also wasn't that threat of a veto from the foreign minister hanging over their heads when they're going out into the world seeking to develop new international arrangements, particularly in, say, for example, growth markets like Southeast Asia or South Asia. All right. So I just want to have a look at that idea. So as you've mentioned, the, this le- partially this legislation was brought in because of agreements that universities are making with other countries such as China, which may involve um, opening Confucius institutes within the universities, which are often seen as ways, uh, as conduits or vectors of Chinese propaganda, uh, coercion and censorship into the Australian uh, academic space or education space. So if the changes that you're requesting are made uh, to the Foreign Relations Act, is that going to jeopardise the government's efforts to try and get that kind of control over the university and education sector that, that protects it from coercion or stops it from accepting money and along with that money and funding also censoring some of the discussions uh, that it may have on campus? So it's a really good point in that the concerns that have led to the Foreign Relations Act are real, significant and legitimate concerns in that the Chinese Communist Party has sought to use the international bridge provided by Australian universities as a means of propagating its propaganda and generating additional soft power for the CCP and for the Chinese state more broadly. So there is a really strong rationale for additional transparency and additional accountability in terms of the international agreements that Australian universities developed. But we think that that can be done without the really quite blunt coercive instrument of a veto power from the foreign minister. So what we're proposing in our paper is that you achieve a lot of those benefits of transparency and accountability by developing a scheme akin to the foreign influence transparency scheme that operates broadly in Australia, but applying it specifically to the issue of international arrangements between Australian universities and foreign counterparts. So we're proposing situating that within the Department of Employment Skills and Education, education. <laughs> and having that as a public register of all of the key international arrangements between Australian universities and their foreign counterparts above a certain threshold so that we can have that measure of openness and transparency and so that the Australian media sector and so that Australian researchers and analysts can do their job of analysing and critiquing and subjecting universities to the kind of accountability that they need to be subjected to, but without having this overarching fear of the possibility of international arrangements being vetoed at will by the foreign minister. I just want to jump in and add a couple of things, if I may, Chris. Um, If we look at this from the university um, perspective, 
if you're, say, a small university somewhere in Australia and you want to sign a, in, under the current Foreign Relations Act and you want to sign a new deal um, with a university in, say, um, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, even India, the Foreign Relations Act basically says that for all universities that don't share the same amount of institutional autonomy as universities in Australia, um, that will need to be subject to review by DFAT and the Minister and then possibly a veto as well. Now, how regularly the veto will be used at this point is not known. Now, it's quite possible in practice that really the reviews and vetoes only happen with China. Um, we don't yet know that. But as we sort of interviewed people throughout the sector for this, there was a lot of concern that it would end up um, being used or scrutinised for deals that happened with Vietnam, with India, with Malaysia and Singapore, all countries that have universities have lower levels of institutional autonomy than Australian universities do really, um, but whether that's going to be applied there. So what we already saw is some universities sort of holding back on early stage deals that might only be very small that could potentially grow into something like a joint program or something else down the track because they're worried that it would either be vetoed early or vetoed later once they spend a lot of time into it. So there is um, that that um, opportunity cost that comes with by raising the amount that um, allows that to happen. So we suggest $200,000 doesn't have to be that amount. It gets to the point where only deals of a certain size start to um, hit this transparency register. So it's not as though universities for every single like MOU that might be just one thing have to go deep that and then put it through the system. So we're, we're really looking at a much uh, lower burden of universities, but also the DFAT. I mean, a lot of these universities have thousands of deals, maybe tens of thousands of deals with other, other universities overseas, and the DFAT to go through that. If you're looking at many tens of thousands initially, but then a constant ongoing fee um, for something that may not end up turning up too much. So what we've got this suggestion is we just put a threshold on it so it doesn't uh, go too much, and also to avoid the veto concern make it a, a, a transparency register, and that's really been the issue with the Confucius Institute. Until very recently, most of them didn't share what the, what the details of those contracts were. Um, this would allow that to happen, and then if the public doesn't think it's right, there will be significant pressure applied in that way rather than having the minister sit in over the top and have the sort of gun to the head of universities in a country where we do want to have as much space from government as possible with the university sector. Before we move on to the way the government attracts students into Australia, I think we might take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, but we will be back in just a tick to hear more from Dirk van der Klee and Ben Herskovich here on the National Security Podcast. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome back to the National Security Podcast. We have Dirk van der Klee and Ben Herskovich here chatting to us about Chinese economic coercion and what the Australian government can do to make Australia more resilient. Now, we do we are going to broaden the discussion out a bit to the Australia-China relationship and where it's going and why it's acting in the way it is. But first, I just want to touch on a point that you've made in your paper about the way the government goes about promoting education as an export in Australia. You've mentioned in the paper and previously in the podcast how tourism into Australia is actually quite small compared to uh, to education as an export. Why do we have such a large effort in attracting tourists to Australia but we have very little and we don't have a coordinated approach to attracting students into Australia. Why is that the case and what do we do to fix that? Um, well, that, that's an ex- excellent question, Chris. The why uh, to us is not 100% clear. We, we maybe theorise that because the uh, universities themselves, there's only you know, a few dozen of them, that there's more responsibility from the position of government and society that they should do the promotion themselves rather than government. Uh, but after having spoken to a number of smaller universities, their capacity to be in a large number of markets uh, and really be on the ground, it's, it's pretty limited. And this is where we think government can actually play a role. So, of course, universities are going to have to do some or some or a lot of their own promotion, as are other providers. But for smaller providers uh, that don't have the resources of, say, the GOA, they can't be in a lot of the diversity markets. Um, so, what we're suggesting. Uh, is a coordinated approach, uh, uh, an office set in DFAT in charge of education, promotional education, diversification. And the idea is that we, we bring all parts of the sector together so they can get behind, so they can get behind, um, that particular, um, promotion itself. We will have an ambassador whose sole role is to promote education exports, who we think it's a large enough export that is justified. And it is different to, you know, gas and iron ore, which are more fungible um, assets, whereas education relies a lot more on branding. Um, and we do propose that it coordinates from the top, making sure that the messaging is the same, that there's a lot of people on the ground in the countries that matter. So we're, we're systematically targeting countries that maybe we haven't targeted as well as we should have, like in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, so we're, we're putting a branding package together to, to try and attract, um, have a sort of branding for education Australia around so that there's something that a lot of the smaller education providers can get behind, something akin to what Canada does now. And yes, it's true that there's no cohort that is as large as China. We wouldn't be able to replace it. But if you look at the efforts of Canada um, during the Trump administration, they were very successful at attracting Indian students. And there's now actually more Indian students uh, in Canada than there are from China. And that happened during that period there. The point being that there is, it is possible to actually take students away from other major providers and also to tap into growth in other sectors with the understanding there's limitations. But that's something that we can do relatively cheaply to try and give our universities and other education providers a leg up in these markets 
which are going to be the growth markets of the future. And it's worthwhile just on that point to emphasize that this strategy for diversifying and building new markets for Australian education exporters in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and potentially also Sub-Saharan Africa does not in any way imply that there is an effort to ignore the China market in that these kinds of initiatives that we're proposing, having a dedicated ambassador for Australian education or having a revitalized Austrade promotion program to get more of a consistent education brand out into the region could also be applied to the China market. And so the benefit of these kinds of proposals is that not only are you hopefully building redundancy into your education exports by increasing exports to other regions outside China, so that if China seeks to use economic coercion against Australia, you have a lot of fat in the system and the education sector can survive. But if China does not, in the end, end up using coercive measures against Australia, you can benefit even more from the huge China market in that these kinds of programs would also apply to China. So it's hopefully a set of policy proposals which are all weather appropriate in a sense, in that if the Australian-China relationship goes really far south and China seeks to turn the tap off to some extent, there is still the possibility of having all these education exports elsewhere in the world. But if things are good in the relationship, then this ambassador, the Austrian campaign, that will equally apply to China. And so we'd see, hopefully, our numbers increase vis-a-vis China as well. That leads nicely into a question that I have from a friend of ours, Dr. Darren Lim, who you will be familiar with. He is the senior lecturer at the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences and the and a National Security College's Future Council member. But as most of our listeners would be aware, he is the co-host of the Excellent Australia in the World podcast. And he, he asks, as you've just stated, there there really is no market where we can just instantly diversify away from China on. So what does what does this inevitably mean as the sector gets smaller? Should the uh, Chinese government choose to use the education sector as a point of coercion, which they have signaled that they're going to do, should the government subsidise the sector, keeping in mind that government funding of resilient supply chains is a really hot topic right now? Do we need to fund a resilient research capa- uh, capability or something similar? Um, so this is uh, Dirk here. Uh, I think that would be excellent, but I have grave doubts about the political viability at this point. So we're talking in a hypothetical sense, not in something that I think is politically feasible at the moment. The amount of money would be pretty significant in terms of billions of dollars every year. Um, your listeners may not be aware of this, but Victoria pledged to um, spend more research money up to 2030. I think it was $2 billion off the top of my head, and that sort of per year is only $200 million. So the amount of money that you need to spend over an extended period is billions and billions of dollars per year. I, I think it's a great idea. If it, if it could happen, it would be a great idea. But let's be honest, the, the, the government is not really in the mood right now to spend that kind of money. Um, this is this is just the, the reality of the fiscal situation that we're in. Um, so it, it would be a nice have. I just think it's unlikely to happen. I'm not dealing in the political realities of the world that we're in at the moment. You should never ask university researchers what they think about more government money than university researchers. <laughs> very, very firm point. All right, so let's let's broaden the discussion to the overall uh, economic relationship and diplomatic relationship between uh, Australia and China. Dirk, you 
wrote a recent article uh, for the Australian Financial Review um, stating that Beijing's attacks on the Australian economy are for a wider audience. Who is that audience and what is Beijing's message? So we often talk in the Indo-Pacific about whether US credibility will remain, um, whether it's going to support its allies, and we always talk about credibility. From Beijing's perspective, I personally feel um, on this, we're looking at a situation where they've got to worry about their coercive credibility. Uh, so that this is a message to other countries in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, if you consistently defy us, there will be a significant economic punishment that you have to pay until you stop doing that. Uh, if they don't succeed in enacting a significant economic punishment against Australia, their coercive messaging to the rest of the region will suffer because the message will be that uh, you can continue to do what, what you want um, and we will only punish you for a period of time uh, and eventually it will end or you can go to the US. So the issue here is that this needs to be seen to hurt for the long term until Australia makes some sort of political concession that is obvious. Uh, so that, that's why I'm extremely negative about going forward. I don't think that's something that Australia will do. Uh, and I don't think that Beijing is going to back down anytime soon, no matter how much harm this does reputationally. Also, I think that they now have this coercive credibility problem. They need to make sure that when they coerce, it's seen to actually be effective both economically and politically. So we really are the test case here. Now, there's one other part of the discussion that often happens, which is about the domestic rhetoric in China, and I think that these two things don't have to be, in this case, mutually exclusive. Of course, it can play well domestically in China and also have that message to go to other countries as well because if they, if China was to back down now, the message will be to every other country in the region, you just hang on for a year or two and China will back down, and I don't think that's the message they want to send. So just in terms of that domestic rationale for these kinds of coercive measures, I totally agree with you, Dirk, that there is a big sense in which this is aimed at a broader international audience, aimed at an outside audience, and it's about the reliability of China's coercive threats. But I also think that as time goes on, it seems increasingly as if, quite aside from seeking to change policy in Canberra or anywhere else, Beijing would continue with this kind of behavior as a result of two considerations. The first is I think that even though this is a bit amorphous and a bit speculative and hard to get a grip on, the sense I have is that for Xi Jinping or other senior figures in the CCP, they are genuinely aggrieved and outraged by what Australia has done on a whole host of fronts, vis-a-vis things like 5G, Huawei, foreign interference, the South China Sea, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, the list goes on. That's not to say that any of those concerns are legitimate, but from Beijing's perspective, Australia's behaviour over the last circa five years is seen as a really serious threat to a range of core Chinese interests. And there's probably some level on which Beijing would be willing to coerce Australia, inflict pain, even if they knew there was no hope whatsoever of changing policy in Canberra, but just because, in their judgment, Canberra deserves it. (laughs) And then beyond that, I also think there's a sense in which, in terms of China's overarching strategy, vis-a-vis great power competition with the United States and U.S. allies and partners, there's an effort to create greater self-sufficiency in the Chinese economy in terms of Chinese supply chains for Beijing. And this is a national strategic priority. China does not want to rely on what it judges to be unreliable, nefarious providers of raw material and services and goods. And from Beijing's perspective, 
there are few suppliers of goods and raw materials that are less uh, that are more unreliable than Australia. In that, because of the way in which, from Beijing's perspective, Australia has poked its finger in Beijing's eye on across a whole range of fronts, China judges that it is a strategic vulnerability for China to be relying on Australian barley and Australian iron ore and Australian education. And so there would be a rationale for punishing Australia to force a certain level of diversification for the Chinese economy away from Australia, whether it be to create more domestic options for supply, but also maybe to open up other options for Beijing in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or elsewhere. So you say that China doesn't want to be reliant on nefarious actors, but it's interesting that um, China is looking to make other actors reliant on it. Dirk, should there should we see any kind of coincidence that uh, China is really making a test case out of Australia or an example out of Australia at the same time that it's rolling out its BRI and making other countries quite reliant on trade with China? Um, well, I mean, just the size of China means that the countries will be reliant anyway, regardless of um, directed efforts. But I think the point that you're getting at there is correct. Um, in the past, what's been talked about debt, but when we talk about reliance with China, it is really trade, um, some investment, transit fees, and a few other things. Um, it's not so much the, the sort of debt and around infrastructure that gets talked about a lot. Uh, and I think you're quite right. I mean, Xi Jinping made a speech in... October 2020, where I think it was pretty explicit that he wanted to build dependence on supply chains, not just trade, but supply chains um, around China that excluded uh, actors that are unreliable. And I would think the US and Australia would be in that in that list, although it was never explicitly named. Um, so I don't. I think that these two things are probably um, this dependence that you're talking about and the punishments that are happening to Australia. There might be some mutual interest there in the way that Ben talked about it, but I don't think the timing was intentional. I, I think it was more a case of there are a lot of things that Australia did politically which could have big global ramifications, such as Huawei, the COVID um, investigation. The point was that if you're going to step out of line, that there will be significant punishments for you. I mean, they can diversify in other ways without having directly, to directly punish us. They can just buy barley from elsewhere. Um, there, there are there are other, other tools and sort of going this route, um, particularly when they haven't yet got an um, alternative supply for the one that really matters, which is iron ore. Um, all the others, they'll be, they would have been able to find, and they have been able to find alternative supplies at pretty much short notice. It's iron ore that really matters, and um, that's, that's something that they don't yet have an alternative supply for. So from where I see it, these two things are maybe mutually reinforcing, but the timing wasn't intentional. One was a, a broader response to build dependence and also to, you know, help uh, export over capacity and to help Chinese companies go abroad. The second part, what happened with Australia, it was related to a bunch of decisions that Australia made. If Australia hadn't banned Huawei, hadn't have done those other things, I don't think we would have seen those those actions put into play. All right, so, so we've, we've, we've talked a bit about um, China's actions, the Chinese government's actions and their, 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 their domestic messaging. What about Australia, though? Is Australia's approach to this relationship with China pragmatic or is it more political at the moment? You can take this better. <laughs> Every relationship is always political. It's politics, politics, politics all the time. But that's obviously far too glib. I think the current situation is one of both 
a significant level of political influence and a significant level of pragmatic considerations at play. And so I, I think it's a melding of the two in that, say, for example, you take really high profile issues like the exclusion of Huawei from the 5G network. That was based on a really serious, considered set of pragmatic concerns about the risks associated with bringing a Chinese telco into a critical piece of ICT infrastructure in Australia. On things like the call for a COVID inquiry into the origins of COVID in April 2020, maybe in part that's pragmatic, but it's also a significant political decision on the part of the Australian government, messaging certain things domestically in Australia, but also messaging certain things internationally and crucially to the key ally of the United States. So, Do you I think, think the same is with, with cancelling the BRI agreement with Victoria? I think so, yeah, absolutely. I would say that partly that's based on a pragmatic calculation, but partly that's also about signalling to Beijing that Australia is deeply concerned about the nature of the way in which Beijing has been able to effectively create vectors for its foreign policy into Australia that bypass DFAT and the foreign ministry and the foreign minister and the prime minister. And partly that's a pragmatic thing, but it's also partly a political point about saying, we are in control. You must come by the gatekeepers. Do not seek to so influence and generate goodwill via other means. But I, I will say, in terms of the overarching trajectory of the Australia-China relationship, the politics of it is becoming more and more prominent in that on a whole host of different fronts, the really contentious China policy questions for Canberra are infused with all of these underlying moral and political considerations and judgments. So something like the issue of the industrial-scale human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Australia's possible policy responses to that, partly there's a pragmatic question of should we introduce targeted sanctions and what impact will that have on the CCP and will that change Chinese government policy in Xinjiang? But then partly it's also a first-order moral and political point about there is something that looks and smells like genocide occurring in Xinjiang, something that is also crimes against humanity and the Australian government is probably compelled on a kind of basic moral political level to take a particular political course of action, a particular policy course of action, regardless of the pragmatic considerations at play. And I think that kind of dynamic is becoming more powerful on a range of different fronts. And the issue of foreign interference writ large is also a case of that in that partly that's about really fine-grained particular pragmatic concerns about uh, counter foreign intelligence and countering influence in our politics and in our universities, but it's also an underlying moral and political question about Australian sovereignty and the desire for Australian political leaders and for the Australian public to have control over the way in which foreign governments seek to propagate their messages domestically in Australia. So it's a meld of the two, but I think the politics is becoming more and more prominent, and as a result of that, the relationship is becoming more and more fraught and the debate is becoming more and more febrile. So I just want to say thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. You've been very generous with us today. And we have one final question that we ask most of our guests here. And I note that Dirk readily threw Ben under the political bus to answer that that final question there. So I'll, I'll, I'll aim this one firstly at you, Dirk. Yeah. 
what is one of those seminal moments that you've experienced that has shaped the way that you understand the world? And this could be like a person that you've met or a famous speech that you've heard, a special book that you've read, or even a piece of music that's inspired you. Have you had a moment or an instance that's really shaped the way that you've looked at the world and, and that's also directed your career? Well, I'm... I knew this question was coming before the start of this particular podcast, and I was dreading it because I'm sure other people come on here and they quote famous speeches and all sorts of things. Oh, very profound. You've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> um, the two things, that, the two, two things, same situation that happened in two, two different cases. To me, I was um, living in China sort of in my early to mid-20s, and I visited a lot of, you know, really poor rural villages um, and over the last, so it's been, I guess, not a single moment, but a few moments, but over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, I've seen the capabilities and opportunities for those group of people really, really, really grow. And so when we talk about things that are, you know, foreign policy, international relations, always bringing it back to the individual of matters is something that's, that's really stuck with me through that. Um, I know it doesn't, sort of get picked up when we talk about all the debates that we had to have today, but the impacts these things have on individuals and the opportunities that people have in life are really important to consider when we're talking about international relations. I know there's nothing that Dirk Vanderclay, you know, can do about the lives of people um, in China and there's certainly even the Australian government can only do so much. Um, but when we talk, talk about rule-based orders and things that, we want to do internationally, it always should try and come back to the individual. You know, what does this really mean to individuals? Um, so it's not one, you know, super high prominent moment, but it's, you know, cycling through villages where I've seen people who, you go back a couple of decades, didn't have enough to eat, and now they have jobs, cars, access to electricity, their kids can get an education where they couldn't. Um, it sounds small, but it's really profound for a lot of people. Yeah, and as a former soldier myself, when I hear a lot of the talk of war that's been happening recently, both in media and from some of our elected and non-elected officials, I really do hope that they understand the impact on the individuals when it comes to the sharper pointy end of international relations. And on that morbid note, Ben, do you have a particular moment that shaped your life or career? I was hoping that Dirk's brilliant answer would get me out of this entirely. <laughs> Look, I think mine probably goes back to, I think it was the middle of 2014 when I was living in Beijing, and I had a close friend and colleague who was Russian and based in Beijing as well, and we were working at the same consultancy there. And it was May, and so it was the celebration of the end of World War II in Europe. And this probably speaks to my naivety as much as anything else, but when I was having a brief conversation with her about it, to me... It was a case of that classic story of the Allies, the little bit of liberal democratic powers banding together to defeat fascism. And her response was one of almost being a little bit aggrieved in that, in her mind, the end of World War II was so much a product of the sheer sacrifice and might of the Red Army. And that sacrifice and the role of Soviet Russia in that battle is something that in Australia and the United States, though we probably have it in the back of our mind, we don't really appreciate the full extent of it, the full extent of the sacrifice and the disparity in the levels of sacrifice between a country like Russia and the United States or Australia in that conflict. And to me, 
even though it's just one particular example, it highlights that point that we should always seek to zoom out of our own particular perspective on these big world politics historical events and consider how it looks from the side that we don't have much familiarity with and don't really understand on an intimate personal level. Gentlemen, those responses were as insightful and as profound as anyone has given on this podcast. Thanks very much for joining us today on the National Security Podcast. Thank you. Well, that's your lot for today. But before you go, don't forget to check out the Policy Options paper authored by Dirk and Ben. If you haven't already, please give the National Security Podcast a rating on your favourite podcast platform. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.